welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, focusing on Bloody Sunday, the 21st of November 1920, historian John Bergenovo discusses the events in Dublin on that morning when British intelligence officers were assassinated by Michael Collins's The Squad. And award-winning journalist and author Michael Foley recounts the massacre at Croke Park that afternoon, which left 14 innocent people dead or dying. The moderator is historian Porg Yates, and the episode was recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 26th of September 2015. Thank you all for coming. You know, history is a blood sport, always attracts a crowd. And just for anyone who's under any illusions or confused, we're talking about the third of the four Bloody Sundays of the 20th century in Ireland, which is also the, the bloodiest one in terms of the number of fatalities. And uh, as you probably guessed, I've got a frog in my throat, but I, I won't be doing much of a talking here today, fortunately. Um, it's uh, John Borganovo um, from the School of History in University College Cork, who's done extensive work over many years on the whole military intelligence situation uh, in the country at the time. So he's going to fill us in in some detail about what the situation was like in Dublin and why... Uh, we had the, these events happen uh, when they did on the morning of November the 21st, 1920. And then Michael Foley, who's the deputy sports editor of the Sunday Times, I'm sure many of you read, read his reports over the years, he's going to tell us what happened in the afternoon. It's really a, a game of two halves, if you pardon that expression. People uh, attacked uh, the British intelligence network uh, in the morning, and then the British um, uh, establishment struck back in the afternoon uh, and we're going to look at how far that was a controlled event, or either of them were controlled events, and how far uh, things got out of hand. Uh, because no doubt the, the, the day as a whole had a traumatic effect, not just in Dublin or in Ireland, but on British opinion as well. Just mention both their books, in case you want to get them outside. John has written first of three books on the history of Cork between 1916 and about 1923-24. Which is well worth a read, even if you never go near the place. Following um, your template. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and, uh, Michael uh, has written, uh, I can only describe it as a riveting read on, on Bloody Sun because he's brought together the political and the sports and the military stuff uh, and woven them together so you can't, you can't see the gaps at all uh, and made it a very uh, a living experience almost for people. So uh, without more ado, um, I'll ask John to set the scene uh, for the morning and to tell us what happened on the morning of November the 21st, 1920. Well, when we think about this, kind of the context, there was uh, an ex- escalation of Republican violence in the first half of 1920. And it had a whole series of effects. Uh, in terms of policing of the state, the Royal Irish Constabulary were on the back foot and were demoralized. Um, there had been a series of attacks on them. They were suffering under a boycott. Uh, a lot of uh, nationalists within the organization didn't like what was happening and the coercion that was being introduced. Uh, and as the IRA campaign uh, stepped up, the RIC stepped back. And you saw a, a series, about a third of the police stations in the country were evacuated. Uh, resignations went right up through the roof. There was a, uh, a, a kind of a trade union element within the force uh, asking for the force to be uh, disarmed. And so there was a crisis within policing. In Dublin, the Dublin Metropolitan Police, who were unarmed, 
Um, but they did have an armed element, the G Division, which did political operations. And they were basically plainclothes detectives. And in 1919, Michael Collins had assassinated three or four members of that group. He had them pretty well infiltrated. And he'd also infiltrated other parts of um, the double metropolitan police. So the police intelligence service, which had been really the bulk work of the British administration in Ireland, which had great, was a fantastic intelligence operation because you had people embedded within the community, basically had effectively collapsed or was nearing collapse. It, was, it had grown quite ineffective. Uh, so in the spring of 1920, the British administration, the British government, decided that they really militarized the situation. So they brought over a whole series of new civil servants, senior civil servants. They uh, started recruiting reinforcements to the RIC from Britain, who were known as the Black and Tans. They also organized the auxiliary division of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the auxiliary cadets, who were basically an officer class, ex-officers, well-paid. Um, they were brought over. Uh, you also saw reinforcement of British garrison troops and, and British army troops deployed around the place. And the British military started undertaking intelligence operations. So this is all kind of occurring during the, the late spring, summer of 1920. And so by the autumn of 1920, you start seeing some results. And there's a, a kind of a, a more determined outlook by the British government, by Dublin Castle. Uh, they execute Kevin Barry uh, for, you know, the first volunteer executed, even though he was 18. There's an outcry against it. They allow Terence McSweeney and two others to die on hunger strikes. So hunger strikes out as a weapon. So they seem to be on the front foot. And in Dublin, the uh, army uh, general headquarters, the British army general headquarters, decided to recruit their own plainclothes detectives, their own plainclothes intelligence officers. And they arrived here in the summer and early fall of 1920. And they were visible and they were apparent. And the IRA operating in Dublin became aware of them. Uh, and so that was basically a decision was made to strike against them. And uh, information was gathered and they were identified in various locations uh, around the city, really in the city center. And so the Bloody Sunday was effectively a strike against them and a couple other folks who were also in that kind of web. And so there was always, a, a, there was always, when you look at this kind of stuff, it's never quite easy to see who's an intelligence officer and who isn't. But there's been kind of recent research in the last 10 or 20 years. And we know now that uh, the military intelligence officers were identified, were a lot of the people who were targeted on Bloody Sunday, but they weren't all successfully hit. So what's my, what's my number here? There were 23 people targeted. Um, actually, I'm, I'm kind of getting in the hub of myself, but uh, do you want to come want, in? Yeah, do you want to describe maybe what happened on the morning and then maybe give us a, an idea, an analysis of how successful or unsuccessful it was, Sean? Sure. And they knew there was a problem. They knew these people were a threat. And they then had to put together a plan to get rid of them. Sure. And maybe just in that context, could ask you, the, the Dáil Éireann government was, saw itself as a government. And it was, there was a cabinet meeting, wasn't it? To, uh, Collins wanted to kill about 35 people originally. Right. So maybe you could say a bit about yeah. that. So, well, first of all, there's a lot of hyperbole about Bloody Sunday. And there's a lot of kind of this cult of Michael Collins it leads into, my, into Bloody Sunday. And I'd be kind of critical of Tim Pat Coogan's book. On, I think he exaggerates Collins' role and Collins is, as being this kind of super genius uh, um, guerrilla uh, mastermind. Collins was at the forefront of Bloody Sunday, and his department 
did a lot of the heavy lifting. But it was a group effort by the by the senior IRA leadership in Dublin and their kind of their general headquarters, approved by Cahill Brewer. Uh, so prior to this, Collins had asked permission for a big, wide strike. And I think part of it was also motivated by the fact that um, they were kind of behind the tempo of fighting elsewhere in the country. There had been a lot of demoralization around, I think, the, around the execution of Kevin Barry. And you probably have your own opinion on that. Um, and I think it was seen as kind of a, a strong step, uh, assertive step by Dublin GHQ of the IRA against uh, the British administration. Uh, Collins is a nation. Were they also getting quite close to Collins? They'd had a they, 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 had, yeah. they had gotten close to Collins. Um, they had, when, when did they get uh, Mulcahy's uh, headquarters? I, well, I think they got his papers quite early because it was mobile. I think that was, that was, that was yes. kind of pre- earlier in yes. the month. Yeah. Uh, so they were starting to get close. Uh, they had uh, narrowly missed Sean Tracy and Dan Breen from Tipperary out in Drumcondra, uh, which was a kind of a wild, crazy shootout. And then they shot dead Sean Tracy... Uh, the previous month. So the net was starting to tighten. And Collins asked permission for a big, bold strike. Originally, they think uh, it was maybe 30, 35 folks were asked for permission to to shoot. Um, That uh, target base was whittled down, uh, and Cahill Brewer kind of went through each one who was Minister Doyle Aaron, Minister of Defense. So even though Collins was definitely the, the point man on this, it was going through the IRA and the Republican chain of uh, command. And the operation itself was a combined operation of Collins' squad, his hitmen, um, his kind of uh, assigned shooters, with um, senior members of the Dub- or active members of the Dublin Brigade. So that's why Sean Lamass, for example, was, a lot of people assume that Sean Lamass was a member of the squad. He wasn't. He was just an active member of uh, one of the Dublin uh, IRA battalions, as was uh, Todd Andrews was another kind of example. So it was a big, wide uh, operation. They basically targeted, I think that the figure is 23. And of that number, 10 were definitely these British Army intelligence officers. And about 15 could be labeled intelligence operatives out of 23. There were probably three or four people who were innocent, who were mistaken, um, who aroused suspicion for various reasons. And there were a couple of civilians who were maybe guilty, maybe not. You never know about these things. I can never be quite positive, but it was, for terms of a strike rate, it was pretty, it was, it was ambi- ambitious, but it was pretty reliable in terms of who they were getting. And a lot of these intelligence officers were, were doing a very poor job of hiding themselves. So they were living, a lot of times they were living, so one of the things about just the British Army in general in urban areas was a lot of officers lived outside of barracks and they weren't attacked. They were living in lodging houses or renting ha- rental accommodation. Uh, active duty soldiers could walk around all, pretty much any city in Ireland and not be attacked at this stage. The IRA was only trying to disarm soldiers and wasn't kind of doing a general attack against uh, what were kind of regarded as unarmed um, British personnel. And Bloody Sunday is kind of changes changes that dynamic. You also see kind of going back to this general increase of British intelligence. Down in my area in Cork City, you see them, they, they hit, around the same month, they hit about eight uh, suspected British military and police intelligence officers. They kill six. Uh, and, they, and they also uh, kill uh, four or five civilians who were suspected. So you see in different areas the same thing. Basically, the British are getting more effective. Their net is tightening, and the IRA respond. So in the morning, uh, 
It was. Yeah, can you say so? Yeah. So just, you set the scene. It was life was fairly normal for most British officers living in the city. Uh, but it's this side about nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. Didn't right. It? So they. So Collins <coughs> decides that there's going to be a simultaneous Sorry. attack, and that the best way of uh, making sure most people are home is you go Sunday morning and go early Sunday morning, and so. Uh, a number of these officers also lived in shared premises. So the number of homes hit, I think, I think it was eight, eight kind of uh, locations, houses. eight houses, or and w- it would have been, you know, like boarding. A lot of them were boarding houses uh, and kind of uh, rented accommodation. Uh, and a lot of these folks, a lot of these, uh, well, the intelligence officers were living alongside active duty British intelligence officers who were coming into normal duty. So the operation itself was quite ambitious. It required a, a whole lot of people. Uh, there were shooting teams dispatched to all these diff- to the eight different locations. They, were, they had scouts with them. They had guys covering parties with them. They had kind of lines of retreat set up. Uh, I'd estimate maybe, maybe 80 or 100 folks were involved total. Um, generally, they were led by uh, an intelligence officer from Collins's um, intelligence department, along with a member of the one or two members of the squad, who were there to provide some backbone to shoot people dead. Uh, and when they went in, they went in hard, and they and they shot a whole most of these people in their beds or in their pajamas. And this added to the whole kind of horror and the, and the shock aspect of it. Um, a lot of folks they missed. A number of people were, a lot of number of the intelligence officers weren't at home, had been out maybe boozing the night before or out with different kind of company uh, or were on duty. Uh, so it wasn't a, as effective in terms of wiping out all those military intelligence officers in terms of killing them. Uh, but they were all identified and afterwards they could no longer um, basically operate publicly or secretly they, and they had to go into double castle and basically their operation kind of folded. Um, so it's been, I think the idea of them all being wiped out and destroyed in a single day has been exaggerated. Um, but it is, was definitely regarded as a setback to British intelligence. And it was, but the big thing was the shock it brought because, uh, the British government had seemed to be, believed it to be on the front foot, believed it to be getting the situation in hand, not just in Dublin, but around Ireland. So the idea that all of a sudden on a Sunday uh, around the city, People can go in and shoot dead a whole bunch of officers. That was shocking. And the and uh, anyway, I'll get back to you. No, no, thanks, yeah. Sean. So you set the scene. Uh, life was fairly normal, as as normal as it could be. Sunday morning, all these reports start coming in of British officers, some of them in front of their wives and families, uh, come into the into the depot, and then the British Army have to decide what to do, or the British administration. And it coincides with this long-running rivalry between Dublin and Tipperary and a special match. So I, I hand over to Michael and, Mike, you could say something. This wasn't an All-Ireland or anything. This no. was a very special match. No, no, it was, um, <coughs> and it's kind of one of the slight misnomers, I suppose, that started growing up about the game in the afternoon, that it was an All-Ireland final or it was some kind of thing. It was a challenge game. Um, but I suppose what made it significant was the fact that the All-Ireland Championships would say, certainly in Munster, the Munster Football Championship had completely grown to a halt. Uh, the Munster Council had kind of stopped everything once the Terence McSweeney hunger strike had really taken grip. They stopped everything. So you had a situation where Dublin were in, were, had already made the 1920 All-Ireland Football Final. They had beaten Cavan actually in an All-Ireland semi-final that was convened at three days' notice. 
which didn't go down well with the Cavan crowd because they'd done two weeks of collective training about three weeks before for the match. And then they were told on the Friday night, get yourselves to Navin, we're going to play the match on Sunday. So they went up and got seven shades of everything beaten out of them by Dublin. So Dublin were in the final, but the, the challenge for the game came from Tipperary. They sent a letter in in early November to Sport magazine that also appeared in Freeman's Journal, basically calling out Dublin. Just basically calling out saying that, you know, superiority over Dublin has been questioned uh, and we'll... It was, basically like, it was basically like boxing, you know, we'll fight you anywhere you want for any prize. Um, so uh, the initial reaction was, what are they talking about? You know, they'd played a couple of challenge games, Tipperary had won a couple of games, but they hadn't really met in championship action, so no one really knew. But it was a big game because... As I said, Dublin were in the All-Ireland final. Uh, they would have been seen at the time, I suppose, to, to kind of contextualise it for now. Like Dublin then would have been kind of more or less as they would be seen now, uh, or maybe a few years ago before they started really winning All-Irelands. This Dublin team hadn't won an All-Ireland. Uh, they got stuck behind a great Wexford team uh, who had done four in a row and so on. So they were kind of, they were pushing for a final. They had a lot of stars. Tipperary would have been seen, I suppose, in modern terms as a, I suppose like a Donegal or an Armagh who've come in the last few years, um, a team with no real tradition but had kind of just got a very good group of players together and were making big strides. So they came, they came to Dublin to play this match. Um, 15,000 people turned up. It was a big deal. There was a lot of, relatively speaking, there was, there was a lot of media interest in it. How many Croke Park take at that time? Uh, you'd be talking, it wouldn't be much over 15. You're probably talking 20-odd, but I mean, it was, a, it was a serious crowd. The game was actually delayed for a half an hour because of the crowds outside. But um, just to kind of rewind a small little bit maybe to go back to kind of, I suppose, the build into it and two, two, two guys in particular, I suppose, that sort of link the morning to, to the afternoon and maybe to talk specifically about one is Johnny MacDonald, um, who was the goalkeeper for Dublin on the day. Now, Johnny's, Johnny's Saturday was more or less spent um, going about your business as, as normal, preparing to play a game in Crow Park the following day when he got word that he was required for an operation that morning. Um, one of the very, at the very, very last minute, they added a couple of people to the list of hits, and two of them were Lieutenants Ames and Bennett, who lived in a, who shared a boarding house uh, out in Upper Mount Street. And because it was a late, last minute thing, they pulled in people from E Company, 2nd Battalion of the IRA, which would have worked out of 38 hours. 38, there you go. There you go. Glad to have you on, on board, John. <laughs> I got the echo. Got, got, got my notes down. <laughs> but uh, they, but they had to pull together a kind of pretty quickly a cell to go there. So they, they went to E Company 2nd Battalion, which would have worked out a 7th place, which is where O'Toole's GA club would have been based. The squad actually hung out uh, in O'Toole's clubhouse, which was at 107th place. And Johnny McDonald was an O'Toole's man. So between the jigs and the reels, uh, Johnny was one of those pulled in for the operation in Upper Mount Street. And it was led by a lad called Vinnie Byrne. And this is the kind of stuff that really kind of got me really about Bloody Sunday, the morning and the afternoon, that like, there was guys like Vinnie Bourne. Vinnie Bourne was 19 years of age and he was leading this cell to Upper Mount Street. Um, as John mentioned, a lot of these men were shot in their, in their beds, in their pyjamas. When they got to Upper Mount Street, the maid let them in. Uh, Vinnie Bourne went, she showed them where the two bed, bed, bedrooms were, where the lads were. Bourne went to the first bedroom, captured one, brought him to the back bedroom. He got them both to stand on the bed, and he had this thing 
that whenever he, and Vinny was a member of Collins' squad, so he had, he had he'd been involved in executions before. He had this thing whenever he shot somebody that he, or executed somebody, I should say, that he would whisper to himself, the Lord have mercy on your soul. And that's what he did, and he shot the two of them in the back of the head. Down they went. Out in the hall, looking at the people who were there and the evidence we have from military history, witness statements and so on, could pretty much say that Johnny MacDonald was more than likely in the hall part of the group that was keeping an eye on the maid and also a British soldier that had actually just done, just walked past the front door and saw there was something going on, they'd pulled him in as well. The shooting, after the execution, they went out the door to be met by fire from across the way. Um, there was another chap who had heard all the commotion uh, who was part of the intelligence service actually and was yeah. shooting down at them. So they were peppered with, 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 with uh, gunfire as they left. They got away. Johnny made for uh, the Liffey as they all did, they got boats across and Johnny went home. He lived near Seville Place inside. It's for, I'm sure there's a lot of people here who know where Seville Place is, but it's just kind of up near the Five Lamps, basically up beyond Connolly Station. Um, it, was a, it was the regular Liffey Ferry they got, wasn't it? I think, it, well, well, there was boats. There was meant to be lads there to take them across, but there was no one there. So they actually had to commandeer a boat to get across, on, on the, in this, on sure. this one anyway. Because it was, guys, it was a little bit, uh, it must have been a bit odd because there was, this was part of the plan. It was IRA operatives from all over the place arriving at the Liffey for a boat that wasn't there. So they had to sort of... Because they were worried about the bridges being cut off and, being, mm. and being, not being able to cross the bridges. That's right. Because getting, getting search parties on the bridges. That's right. So Johnny went home. So just yeah. for people to remember as well, the lowest bridge on the Liffey then was what was the Metal Bridge, what is now Butt Bridge. But there was nothing below, uh, the, the, below that. So getting from... Uh, you know, getting across from Sir John Rogerson's Quay to the North Wall was quite a, yeah. a lengthy operation without a boat. And it's worth keeping in mind the night before uh, Bloody Sunday, obviously this is on a very much a need-to-know basis. Not an awful lot of people knew what was going on. But Michael Collins, having made whatever arrangements he had to make, had to make, actually turned up in Phil Shanahan's pub, uh, which was just part of the Monto there on, on Foley Street you now. Um, and he was in there for a late bottle of stout, and there was one or two Tipperary men there, Tipperary IRA men. And he obviously knew the game was on Collins, and he had an inkling that they may be going. He said, do not go there. Do not go there. Dan Breen offered one or two members of the Tipperary team lifts home that morning to get out of the city. They insisted on staying, which makes it all the more, I suppose, remarkable in a way that John McDonnell was involved with one of the, the hits, and he decided to hide in broad daylight by standing in gold for Dublin that afternoon. Another link... Between the morning and the afternoon is a chap called Paddy Moran, who led the Gresham Hotel attack, of which there was a couple of mistaken targets. I think there was certainly a Patrick McCormick from Mayo who was over from the Alexandra Club, I think, from Egypt. He was buying horses. He was sitting up reading his newspaper when the door opened and he was shot in his bed. Um, But uh, Moran, having completed the attack on the Gresham Hotel, he was actually secretary of a GA club out in Dunleary, Dunleary Commercials. And Dunleary Commercials were in their very first... Dublin Intermediate County Football Final. So having completed his duties in the morning, he felt this ju- just as much, I suppose, a, a, a sense of duty to turn up in Crow Park that afternoon, that morning, because their game was on first before the Dublin Tipperary game uh, for their county final. It was a replay against Aaron's Hope. And there's a picture, there's a, there's a team photo of Dunleary commercials with Paddy Moran standing in the back row with the big flat cap, you know, that these guys would... Would, would routinely I suppose. Wear. I suppose if it didn't show up, that would well, be seen would, where as, is he? as a where is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. suspicious. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. So then I mean, that was. I suppose those two were the main, the two connections. I suppose between the morning and the afternoon. 
But beyond that, the GA certainly didn't want to have any sort of outward or any, any sort of public connection to be made between what happened that morning and the events of the afternoon. I mean, the, the scene in Dublin, as, the, as, as John has, has kind of described there, was total panic. This place here, um, the gates outside, they had big cast iron metal gates that time, they closed them. Anybody who had any connection whatsoever uh, with British intelligence, with the British civil service here, they, excuse me, they all arrived at Dublin Castle looking for refuge. They had to put, they took whatever they could into Dublin Castle itself, put everybody else in hotels around George Street and around the area here. Um, up at Crow Park, there, was, there happened to be a meeting that morning actually discussing the ban on um, members of the, well, the civil service, I suppose, at the time playing GA. So there was an awful lot of heavy, kind of GA heavy hitters, I suppose, if you like, administrative heavy hitters anyway, there. So um, it wasn't there a debate about whether the match should go ahead when word began to spread? No, uh, well, the problem with the minutes from around that period, the Central Council minutes, is just, there is none. And there is, there is very deliberately after Bloody Sunday, there is no mention of Bloody Sunday in the Central Council minutes whatsoever in the, in the, up, in the following meetings and so on. Um, nothing specific anyway. There's a couple of small little things about, I think, commemorations and things, if, if my but, memory is But there were right. people living in the area, in the IRA, who were unhappy. I mean, people like Sean Russell. Yes, well, that moves on to the tip-off. Yeah. Um, right. As you mentioned, as Barg mentions there, there was three IRA men, Harry Colley, Harry Colley Sean Russell and Tom Kilcoyne got a tip-off uh, from someone in the Dublin Metropolitan Police that something was happening, that something was going to happen at Crow Park, that there were security forces coming. What it was going to be, no one knew. Um, what had, I suppose, what was planned to happen, at this point, like we're talking probably around midday, one o'clock kind of time, an order went to Collinstown Aerodrome um, for a, a, a military force, essentially to go to Crow Park and surround Crow Park, not to go in, but to surround Crow Park. Another order went to Beggar's Bush for a force of auxiliaries. A force of black and tans came from the Phoenix Park, and they were to go in and perform searches. They were to go in, a guy was to go into the centre of the field with a megaphone, explain that they were there to perform a full search, and they were to basically search everybody uh, and the military outside then to ensure that everybody left in an orderly fashion sort of thing. Of course, it's a completely ridiculous um, plan. Defies. I mean, it just. I mean, they announced. They said that they they shoot people. Anybody who tried to flee, they would shoot. Well, that was, was in. That, the, was that one of the order? It was in the order. Yeah, but it was essentially it was a search at, at yeah. its at its core. It's a search. It's a search operation. Right. But I mean, the reality of it is that at that point, both in the city and in the countryside, like if the IRA did something, there was going to be a reprisal, and vice versa. So everybody in Dublin going to the game. There's accounts of. Of, of people going to the game on, on trams and things, and all the talk on the trams is, what are the tans going to do? Where's going to get burned down? Who's going to get killed? That's, that's, the, that's the mood in the city. So, I mean, going to Crow Park, where there's 15,000 people, a lot of whom would be automatically sympathetic to certainly nationalists, and a lot of them would be strong Republicans. Um, it, it just, it was provocative in a way. Maybe deep, maybe deep down they wanted it to be provocative, but... Certainly, as a search operation, it was doomed to failure before they even left. Uh, the actual process of getting there, the military arrived first. They actually well, arrived. What time, yeah, roughly what time? Yeah, that, what's, and actually going back, sorry to the to the tip off. Actually, before we get any further, the, the three IRA men got to Crow Park. They looked to speak to Luke O'Toole, who was the general secretary 
of the GA at the time. And O'Toole came out and they explained what they had heard. As I say, they were sketchy on detail, but they knew enough to say this game should not go ahead. Uh, O'Toole immediately, he was a, you know, I suppose in keeping with a lot of secretary or director generals of the GA afterwards, he was acutely aware of the politics of the situation as much as the, as much as the practicalities. He did not want the GA to be seen to be stopping a match because of something the IRA had been involved in that morning. He did not want any link whatsoever. He wanted sport. He wanted the GA to be seen as an apolitical organisation that just went ahead with their games regardless of the situation in the, in the country. So his immediate reaction was, we're not stopping it. The second thing as well that was brought up was that the amount of people that were already converging on Crow Park and in Crow Park, it could have actually caused more trouble trying to get everybody out when they didn't know exactly what was coming at them that morning, or that afternoon, I should say. The compromise solution was close to turnstiles. Whoever's in there now, that's it, but anybody outside isn't getting in. So that was, that was as good a deal as they could, but a, a kind of, a, I suppose, again, another kind of little footnote that kind of maybe pulls it all together. Harry Colley's mother lived on Clonliffe Road, and he was walking up. He walked up. Clonliffe Road, again, for anybody, is behind Hill 16. You're walking up there. So his mother was up those, up among them houses. But he was walking around from the Joneses' roadside up around Hill 16, and he noticed a turnstile operator at the corner of the hill and where the Cusack stand is now, on St. James's Avenue there. And there was a ferocious crowd of people who were swelling because he had closed the turnstiles. And he just stopped to observe what was happening, and there was an awful lot of giving out from the public and so on and so forth. And the turnstile operators, I don't know, I just, just told to close the gates. turnstile operator goes away, presumably in an attempt to get more clarification as to why he was told. Uh, came back with no more information and just eventually Collie describes later, he just, the guy just threw his hands up in the air and he opened the turnstiles again and he started allowing people in. Collie goes to his mother's house for dinner and the next thing, yeah, I suppose a half an hour later or whatever it was, he hears the rat-tat-tat outside. <clears throat> when, the, when it stops, he, come, he comes outside maybe a half an hour, 40 minutes later and finds the body of a child out on the front street outside of his mother's gate. So that was the, I suppose, there was an opportunity. It was a difficult call for the GA, um, but there was an opportunity there at least to limit the numbers that were inside. Maybe probably wouldn't have limited the casualties because there was already a substantial number of people in there. You, you, you say in your book that one of the big problems was that the, the officers in charge of these operations yeah. were actually coming behind yeah. the men due to carry them out. So... But there was no real control when, no. the, when the troops or when the police arrived, the auxiliaries. Exactly. Like the, again, I suppose for, to, to try and illustrate the situation, the trucks carrying the auxiliaries and the black and tans were basically, they, they drove up O'Connell Street, as is now across Mountjoy Square, down what is now Fitzgibbon Street, onto Russell Street, and to, for anyone uh, acquainted with Crow Park, just the humpback bridge there at the canal end. It's where the first, we'd say the, the, the trucks would have started there, and then all the way back up. Unfortunately, as you say, the two officers that were charged, in, charged with, 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 with governing the towns and the auxiliaries that day were in trucks that were further back. So looking at the evidence that was given subsequently to military inquiries and so on and so forth, it would appear that the first auxiliaries and towns in the first trucks jumped out. What they were meant to do was to stand steady, get ordered into lines, and go into the ground, and just, you know, no shooting, essentially. But what actually happened, it would appear, looking at the evidence, is that one or two of them fired off shots, and then the rest 
either lined up on the canal bridge and were shooting into the ground or ran down to the, the wall where the turnstiles were to get into the canal end and climb the walls and just started shooting to be indiscriminately into the crowd. The crowd had been running. If you can imagine going in and the canal end is here and the Hogan stand as we know it now is here. The crowds were running that way and they were running that way up towards the hill. So they just came in and they shot from the, from the, from the hip. One or two of them picked out particular knots of men that were running away and shot into the, the, the knots of people. Um, there was one young man called Joe Trainer who was shot twice. He was trying to climb over the wall, a, wall, a low wall that was at the back of the canal goal and it would appear that he would have been in one of those knots of people that they were shooting into. The very first victim, which I suppose... It adds, it, it adds some weight to the notion that it was just an indiscriminate shot that started it all. There was a young, a young man called William Robinson who was 11 years of age, and he lived uh, in Little Britain Street, which is near the Ormond Food Market down off of Crow Street. And I would, I would guess that, that William knew Crow Park fairly well because at the time there was a bunch of trees at the corner of the Canal Goal and the Hogan Stand. And William... When he got to Crow Park, he didn't try to go into the ground. He didn't even try to kind of sneak into the ground. He climbed a tree, and he sat in the crook of a tree, where, of course, he had a great view for an 11-year-old. He wouldn't have much hope in a crowd seeing anything. So he was sitting up in the tree. But it would appear, and this is based on the autopsy reports and so on, that William heard the rumble of trucks, and he kind of turned like so to see what was behind him. And the next thing that happened is a bullet went through his shoulder and exited here and he fell from the tree. So he was the first, he was the first victim of Bloody Sunday. And and was I, a, yeah. sorry, I just going to ask you, again, it's a predominantly uh, male crowd, whether they're young or old, but there was a woman killed as well. That's right. Um, Jane Boyle, who was 27 years of age, she lived on Lennox Street, which is up near Portobello Bridge. If anyone's aware, again, of the Britzel Bakery on the corner there, just number 12, I think she was, I think was the number of the house. But she went to the game with her fiancé, Daniel Byron. And again, Jane would have worked in Spidal's Butchers, which was down on Talbot Street. Um, and I, I kind of, I suppose, coincidentally enough, the Sean Tracy incident where Sean Tracy was shot on Talbot Street coming out of a shop called Republican Outfitters. Republican Outfitters was only a couple of doors up from Spidal's Butchers. And there was a lot of stray bullets went flying that day, including one that went through the window of Spidal's Butchers and embedded itself in the roof, or in the ceiling, sorry, of the Butchers, where Jane Boyle was working that day. Um, she would have, there again in the Bureau of Military History witness statements are great for this. Um, there was one or two of Collins' squad actually knew her. She would have hid, she, it's just coincidence how these things happen. She actually hid arms for, for them once. They were, they were walking down Talbot Street and there, something had happened up the way and there was a, a patrol uh, of black and tans. So there was a consignment of black and tans searching people. So she took their guns and, and hid them out the back of the butchers for however long. But Jane, um, yeah, Jane went to the game with her fiancé. They stood on the halfway line, roughly uh, kind of on the Cusack stand side, as we know it now, probably halfway back up. Um, and when the, when the shooting started, everybody ran towards the hill, as I say. So she was swept along, and Daniel Byron spoke afterwards about holding her hand like that, and just the force of the crowd just pulled the hand away like that. And she was also she was also shot in the back in the end. Um, so she was she was the only female victim. She was due to be married the following Friday, which I suppose adds 
just you know so it, was a, it was just an awful it was an awful tragedy um, it was a mis, it was a misconceived idea uh, in terms of the search operation and at its outset and that's me being kind right. I think there sure. um, but uh, could, it was could I just a, ask I mean maybe ask you John and then we'll go to the audience if people want to ask any questions um, but uh, could you say something about the political fallout from all of this uh, afterwards John it was uh, the funerals for the uh, for the British officers who were killed on Bloody Sunday was a big deal. They were brought back to Westminster Abbey. Um, there was a huge public display, British display of uh, of official sorrow. They had lined the streets with troops um, and and police uh, in Dublin and, the, and in London, and it was seen as uh, a completely uh, uncivilized attack. The idea of shooting men in, uh, in the back. Uh, in front of their wives or girlfriends uh, was seen as a, as not playing by the gentleman's rules. Uh, and it actually quite embarrassed a lot of the Republican leadership who still hadn't really gotten their head around the fact that they were fighting a guerrilla war, that act, that there is no such thing as as fairness, a fair fight in warfare. Uh, and so uh, it was really a, a kind of a watershed moment. And then the following week you had uh, the Kilmichael ambush, uh, about two weeks after that, you had the burning of Cork City Center. So all of a sudden, what seemed like uh, a situation being in hand, all of a sudden was worse than it had been before. And it really uh, convinced the British leadership that they were going to need something else, that there was no easy solution to this. And um, and what you're going to see is another six months of uh, fighting. But really, by Christmas after this, you're going to, the, the British government's starting to put out some peace feelers, and they're starting to be uh, an idea that maybe a negotiated settlement's the best way to, do, to uh, handle the situation. Thanks, John. Yeah. So, so um, you've all been very patient. So uh, I, I know it's been fascinating to hear the detail. Uh, so are there any questions either relating to the morning or the afternoon or both? Yes, I go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, you've spoken about the British reaction to the events of Bloody Sunday morning. But what was the reaction in Dublin to the events of Bloody Sunday afternoon by the public or by the people or yeah, there was, newspapers? Yeah, it was, well, the, well, because of what had happened in the morning, the, the, the city was shut down anyway. There was a curfew and all trains, trams, the whole lot had been stopped. There was no cars leaving the city. So I suppose, you know, obviously shock. In terms of the Crow Park killings itself, themselves, um, I get to feel there was a delayed reaction, and mainly because of the fact, I suppose, that there wasn't an immediate media there to, to get the word around. There was kind of, the word that went around was very sort of, uh, you know, that there, there had been hundreds killed, there was, you know, there was this massive attack. That, and it was the same with the shootings in the morning, that the, right. you know, the numbers were hugely exaggerated. Um, so, I mean, the initial, the initial reaction, I suppose, was uh, really shock. Um, the following morning, uh, it's interesting to read in newspaper reports, Luke O'Toole, as I say, Luke O'Toole is the general secretary. He, was, he actually lives in a house that was nearly on the premises in Crow Park, was right beside what would be now the Hogan Stand. Um, and he, was, he took a journalist and a guy to tour around the pitch. And you had a number of scenes like that were just, just unreal, really, when you think about... When you think of a place, I suppose, where we've all gone to see games and stuff since, you had a group of people praying at the spot where Michael Hogan had been shot, the Tipperary player after whom the Hogan stand was subsequently named, uh, shot and killed. Um, you also had people walk, going around mopping up pools of blood. 
You had people going around picking up umbrellas. They were gathering up apples and oranges because apple and orange sellers used to go around the inside of their ground that time. And of course, they just dropped their stuff and ran. Picking up hats, picking up jackets, shoes. They found shards of bone on the pitch. So I think the whole city, I mean, that okay was very obviously concentrated at Crow Park, but I think the general sense was of shock. A lot of the Tipperary players hadn't gotten down home. They, they, they travelled down on the Tuesday with, with, with the body when it was eventually released. Um, it was just, it was, I suppose, even in the context of, of the troubles at the time and the, and the whole spiral of atrocity and reprisal, um, it, this was even beyond, I think, what, what people would have expected. Yeah, worst, worst day of the War of Independence. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And also there was people, I mean, there was more people killed. There was searches, there was a lot of searches in the city. Like Liberty Hall was a regular spot for, for, for searches yeah. anyway, but more were carried out. I think uh, there was an incident on Capel Street, I think, where an elderly man, they were basically, even though it was curfew, the Black, the black and Tans RIC would go down. Um, there was certainly one on Capel Street where they were, they, were take, they were taking somebody away for questioning, and it was such a big crowd around that the... The, the, the military, I think it was military or the police, I can't remember now, but they fired on the crowd anyway. Yeah, and certainly one elderly man was killed and maybe a 14-year-old. There, there is one actually coded to this, which we tend to forget. It happened the next day, but it was the, uh, the death of three uh, prisoners in Dublin mm-hmm. Castle. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Dick, Dick McKee, Paddy Clancy, and a young lad, Connor Clue from Clean. the West, um, who just happened to be the wrong place at the wrong time. But ironically enough, uh, two of the officers who were targeted by the, the squad and the IRA... Uh, on the Sunday morning, hadn't been in their beds because they'd spent the night roaming around the city and they'd arrested McKee and Clancy, who were very important because McKee was the uh, brigade commander in Dublin and was extremely close to Collins. Uh, and uh, that really changed the nature of the structures of the IRA in Dublin mm. because a man called Oscar Trainer took over, who was very anti, became very anti-treaty. Uh, but it fractured uh, a very close relationship that had been there uh, previously. Um, so they were killed attempting to escape. Um, right. There's no evidence that uh, how they uh, were attempting to do this. They were in cells at the time, but um, there were even rigged pictures uh, taken yeah. to do that. But uh, they were they, those three men tend to be forgotten because they died immediately afterwards. But there's no question they died as a direct consequence of, uh, of what had happened. And an inter- another interesting thing, you asked what the reaction in Dublin, the reaction in the UK was very interesting as well because... Um, People give out about tabloid newspapers and so on and so forth for various different reasons. Um, but the one thing that the tabloids did even then was uh, print photographs. And they printed photographs of um, searchlights being strafed around Dublin City, of, of you know, military guns on the street, crowds of people looking very, very distressed. Um, they printed pictures of the victims. Or called, they printed a picture of Jane Boyle, James Burke, a, a young 10-year-old boy who was killed there as well called Jerome O'Leary who was sitting on the back of the canal wall and got shot off the wall. They, they printed all these pictures. Um, and the reaction in, in Britain as well, I think it was the following week, there was a couple of different things. I mean, there was, there was uh, these stories about cotton mills being burned down in Liverpool and Birmingham and it was the IRA bringing the war to Britain. There was talk of typhoid, or papers being affected with typhoid. Yeah, with typhoid, I think, as well, maybe anthrax, but certainly typhoid, which I know that, like, I mean, Arthur Griffith and, and some of the Sinn Féin um, political establishment were appalled at this, that this was, you know, going completely against their kind of political machinations that were going on in the background. Um, so the, the reaction in, in Britain, there was a lot of Irish party MPs were going around 
speaking at, at, at gatherings, just preaching calm, trying to get people back down to earth after what had happened that weekend. The, the, also, the, the British had also claimed well, that... Because yeah. uh, we tend to think yeah. of the British and the Irish as two homogenous yeah. groups. We tend to forget, I mean, it is a democracy um, of sorts uh, in Britain, and uh, the Labour Party, which right. was the main opposition right. to the government, uh, were very uh, agitated or mobilised by this, and you did have a Labour commission come to Ireland to see for themselves. They, they interviewed lots of witnesses from Cork to Balbriggan, right. over to the west, the, Dublin, they went right through the country and brought out a damning report on the nature of British rule. And if you live in a democracy, and people do, Vietnam is another example, obviously, in America, if you do begin to chat, well, why are we there? Um, would we not be better off pulling out? You do actually begin to change the dynamics of the debate. And it's unfortunate. It took something like this, but that seems to have happened. Yeah, the, Sorry, the, John, the, 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 the British Labour Party was very good about, and also some of the British journalists, especially for The Guardian, were very good about the advertising. Daily News really the, good, right, the, John Martin. The Daily exactly. News. And so you had um, the official explanation for this was that IRA sentries at Croke Park had fired on the police and they'd fired back, and that they'd found all these guns. And, and that was not true. Uh, so what you have is the Republicans are working with the Labor Party to document and just to take witness testimony. And so they're able to get a, 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 more, a much more accurate uh, uh, explanation for a lot of this. And as uh, Parag said, uh, all across Ireland, Labor folks generally, but also uh, neutral parties are going, taking witness depositions to try to get on paper uh, witness testimony that's much more reliable than what's going on from Dublin, what's coming out of Dublin Castle. So, is someone waiting uh, here to say something? Uh, yeah, good morning. Um, you kind of just touched upon it there, but at the time, the Irish Times and certainly the Indo would have talked about this line that there were IRA men in the crowd and there were guns found on the way out, and it wasn't, we weren't sure who had fired the first shot or whatever. Is there any evidence whatsoever for that, or is that just sort of British state propaganda, the same as Derry in 1972? Um, that started, there was three different official statements given on the evening of Bloody Sunday going into Monday morning that appeared in various different shapes and guises uh, in, the, in the papers. The Irish Times, as you say, particularly the Irish Times, went, went with the official explanation, which was essentially the shooting came from the crowd, the police were shooting back in self-defence, that there was 30 guns found. Um, there, was two mili- there was two military inquiries carried out after Bloody Sunday, um, 35 witnesses, 28 testified at both. They're in the Matter Hospital and the Jervis Street Hospital, which were the two places where the dead and the wounded were mainly taken. Um, and their official uh, determination was that it was excessive force was used, but that shooting had come from inside. That was largely based on the testimony of one civilian eyewitness who claimed that someone had stood out from, again, in just in modern terms, the Hogan stand. And when they, when, that someone had stood out from the Hogan stand when they saw the security forces arriving and shot, uh, shot his gun into the air. Now, take that at face value if you like, but where that guy would have come out would have been right beside where the press table was. It would have been obviously something that more than one person is going to see. But if you look at any newspaper, and there was a lot of eyewitness accounts in the British and the Irish media in the following week afterwards, there's absolutely no mention of anybody standing out and shooting up into the air. Um, the evening itself, the, 
the, the guy who was in, in charge of the auxiliaries that day was an E.L. Mills. And Mills came back to Dublin Castle, uh, or sorry, to Beggar's Bush, pardon me, in an absolute state after what he had seen in Crow Park. He was the one who actually let the, the Tipperary team at the end had all been, had been corralled up to where Hill 16 is now. And essentially they were going to be shot. Black and Tans, auxiliaries were moving among them going, it's all over for you. You know, this is it. We're taking revenge for our fallen comrades this morning, all this kind of thing. But Mills stepped in, said, there's been enough bloodshed today. Take, just go home. He immediately went uh, back to base, explained to his superior what had happened and wrote a report that says there was no firing from inside the ground. They found no guns. That whatever had happened was just an outrageous kind of lapse in discipline, basically. However, now, he also does claim that his own crowd didn't do any firing either. So, you know, there's always a little bit of spinning going on. But essentially, and even, you know, after that again, I mean, I think, I think the, looking at all the evidence that's there, I think the reasonable assumption to make is that, number one, yes, of course there was IRA men there. Uh, number two, they had all been told not to go, but this, some of them still went. Uh, number three... One gun was found, and it was found in someone's back garden. Someone was running away, and they just threw the gun away. Uh, I know from, actually, you know, I suppose, anecdotal evidence and so on and so forth from family members related to different people that guns were hidden in all sorts of places. One gun was hidden in a baby because women and children were let walk out, so they hid the gun in the, ch- in, in the baby's clothes. But no gun, like there wasn't, the, the, like the official explanation, even in the House of Commons from Hammer Greenwood, who was the Chief Secretary for Ireland, 30 guns firing from inside. There's, there's no real binding evidence for that. All, all, if you, if you, all the evidence conflicts uh, in terms of the, sh- the first shot coming from inside. So I think the reasonable assumption, and as I say, even from looking at autopsy reports, looking at even just applying Occam's razor here, it, I think the first shot came from outside. So there's a lady here um, asking a question. i come back to you. All right, Michael, I'd just like to address something that you said earlier. You spoke about uh, Paddy Morn being in the Gresham. Uh, he was actually my uncle. Mm. Um, now, you talk about Captain McCormack not being a legitimate target. Um, are you aware that there's a witness statement from a man who was a member of the ASU, the Active Services Unit, who said that um, when they went, he went to Captain McCormick's room with another man, not Paddy Morn, um, and that they shot, McCormick shot at them first, that they shot him and they took his gun, and that it has been said, he's talking like some years afterwards, that McCormick wasn't a legitimate target, but he says he was. I, I believe Michael Collins, though, apologized for McCormick. Well, yes, there in was, a sort of a way. <laughs> he blamed that, the Dublin Brigade. That, that well, Collins, who, said, Collins said he was an yeah, innocent man. Yes, but to his mother. Mm. But uh, it, it, he blamed the Dublin Brigade. Well, who were the Dublin Brigade? The Dublin Brigade was a vast organization. Uh, like, who was he talking about? Um, it seemed always seemed strange to me, and I wrote about my uncle, mm. and I didn't know about that witness statement at the time because I thought it was probably all members of D Company who were in the, right. in the hotel. I didn't. Right. But anyway, I have found the statement since on the web, and uh, it seemed strange to me, even writing, that Captain McCormack was staying in the Gresham and calling himself Captain McCormack 
despite the fact that his mother lived in Dublin, in Dunleary, and he was her only son, and he had a wife and child in the country. You now, I don't yeah, necessarily want to see anybody killed. I would be very peace-loving. Right. And I don't want... But I think it's a little bit dis- to say, disingenuous to say that he was a civilian. He wasn't. What I would say is that he wasn't one of the officers who was... Uh, he's not in the British military records as an intelligence officer. There is Collins, that's one. Collins apologized and said he was an innocent man. And I, and I accept Collins had a tendency of telling people what they wanted to hear. So yes. I, I, I accept that. I would also say that he was certainly arousing suspicion because he was, again, staying uh, there. He was moving around. But uh, the, the kind of various historians who have looked at this, I think the, the, the majority of evidence is that he was probably innocent. But I would also take the, your point that he, there was uh, reasonable grounds to suspect him for being active. And in, in terms of that witness statement, I'll have to take a look at it. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, man. And it's a very fine biography that May has written of Paddy Moore. Um, we'll come back to that some other... Th- we need a whole day for that. Um, so there's uh, someone over uh, here who has here. a microphone yeah. um, on this side. If- very interesting uh, picture you paint of the day of very little knowledge of it, but uh, uh, from the sporting man's point of view, what point was the game at? You painted a wonderful picture between both of you, the morning, the whole thing. And what point was the game at? You know, how many balls have been kicked, how many points have been scored? Because that was in my head. Um, you Man know, was it two to heart. one or one to two or <laughs> 15 to four or whatever? I'll, t- I'll tell you now, um, it was scoreless as was the nature of a lot of games back then. It was a job and a half to get a score, and there certainly hadn't been... I think the, uh, I think the Tipperary uh, goalie had been forced into a couple of catches and th- different things like that. Um, it, would, it would appear, again, just going on... Michael Hogan um, was marking a player called Frank Burke. And Frank Burke was a great footballer. And again, I suppose in, terms of, in the context of the book, and it's, it's been said to me a couple of times, like... How, how, why, are you, why are you saying these games are so great when they're only like 1-1 to no score and all this sort of thing? But like, you have to put yourself in the context of the time. And in the context of that time, Frank Burke would have been like Cullen Cooper now. So he's a serious player. And Michael Hogan's a young fella, marking this guy. Michael Hogan's in his second year playing, playing, playing for Tipperary and he's marking Frank Burke. In fact, he spent the whole night previously trying to get out of marking him. He was talking to Bill Ryan, who was the right half back who was playing in front of him and begging Bill, will you just, you know, you've been around a few years, can we not just swap, you know? And Bill was, problem, problem was that Bill had lost a pair of boots on the way up. There had been an altercation between the Tipperary team and a group of soldiers on the way up on the train. And Bill's boots had gotten thrown out the window of the train. So he had bought, he had spent the whole night previously walking up and down the corridor of the hotel trying to break the boots in. But they were too big. So the last thing, and it's a big point, and I'll get back to your main question, I'm going off on a tangent here now. But uh, the last thing that uh, Michael Hogan did for Bill Ryan. He asked Bill again in the dressing room before he went out, would you please mark Frank Burke? Uh, just please. And Bill said, no. I, I, the boots are like Wellington boots on me. I can't, you know. So Hogan went away and he had his little kit bag and he came out with a shoelace, a pair of shoelaces, and he gave them to Bill Ryan and said, here, use that to tighten up your, your boots. And Bill Ryan lived to a big age and he kept the shoelaces for the rest of his life. That was his... That was his thing. But going back just to very directly answer your question, to scoreless, there was 10 minutes gone, and the reason I got drifted off to Michael Hogan and Frank Burke there is, according to what Frank Burke describes, the ball was bouncing towards himself 
and, and Michael Hogan when the shooting started. And the final score, as far as we know. Scoreless. 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 Uh, so, a draw. So this lady here, we, and then we'll go back Thank to the you. other side again. I'd yeah. like to ask two questions. One, you've given the names of about nine or ten people that were killed. What were the actual numbers of people that were killed in... Um, in the afternoon. In the afternoon. Yeah. And the second thing I wanted to ask is, what was Michael Collins' reaction to what happened in Crow Park? Thank you. Uh, the number was 14. Um, and they were, they were they ranged from all, all sorts of people. There was three children, 10, 11 and 14. Uh, John William Scott was the 14. I mentioned Jerome O'Leary already there and... and uh, and William Robinson, uh, John William Scott, was 14 years of age. He actually lived on Fitzroy Avenue, which if he walked out his front door and looked to the right, the first thing he sees is Crow Park. So he just, he was only a little bit from home. Um, and he was stabbed as well, wasn't he? Or? No, and that's interesting. Yeah, you should mention yeah, Parik, yeah. though, because this is one of the things. Um, John William Scott was hit by a ricocheted bullet. And... The problem with a ricochet bullet is obviously it's bent slightly out of shape. Mm. So when it hits you, it does unmerciful damage. Like it, it, it really did appalling damage. So the sight of this child in a hospital with his chest just absolutely ruined. Um, the story went out that he had been bayoneted to death. Mm. It went so far as there was a question to Winston Churchill in the House of Commons about it. Um, the evidence, it did not ha- it, he, was not, he was not bayoneted to death. It was a ricochet bullet. But in the same way that there were, an airplane flew over Crow Park that day, and it was kind of, and they flew, they let off a flare, um, and that was also went down sort of as a, you know, a signal for the guys to go in. It was, it wasn't. It was just pure coincidence. Mm-hmm. Churchill, whether you believe Churchill or not, but Churchill in, insists that the machine gun that would have been on the plane was was uh, dismantled. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a military plane. They were just they were just having an old spin over Crow Park. Um, there was fourteen killed. Um, Jane Boyle, as I said. Michael Feary was another one from up just off of Mountjoy Square. He was, uh, he was a World War I veteran who lived in Gardner Place in a tenement. He actually lay in hospital for four days unidentified, um, known until his wife finally came to get him. Um, there was an odd sort of symmetry uh, because there were 14 killed on the other side yes, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one yeah. bizarre. And the last, the last guy died yeah. actually was the following Friday, the last man died, a, a, a chap called Tom Hogan. He was 18 years of age. Again, a very strong IRA man. He was an IRA volunteer below. He was from just outside Brewery in Limerick, or kind of between Kilmallock and Brewery, a place called Tankardstown. And he was 18 years of age. He was up trying to get work as a mechanic in, Lim- in Dublin. And uh, he died of his wounds. He got shot in the shoulder, and it was a, it was a very, a very painful death for him. But it was fourteen altogether. Collins's reaction, to be honest with you, I couldn't find any specific mm-hmm. reaction to the bloody Sunday, as- or sorry, to the Crow Park aspect. I do know that Collins got very, very close to getting arrested that morning. For some reason, he decided to collect dispatches from a prison warden who was up from. Port East Jail, who would bring in dispatches from the prisoners in Port East Jail, who this chap would come up routinely to Dublin. He would normally meet some IRA operative. And when he got, he was at Cross Guns Bridge, which is just up there in Fitzborough at the canal. And who was standing there but himself? So he kind of took exchanged dispatches. They were walking back in towards town. I suppose down, I suppose back down towards kind of where Tesco is now in Fitzborough, down towards there. And the crowd, all the crowd were going towards Crow Park, but there was a military checkpoint, and they stopped the two of them. And 
the, uh, the warden's name was Patrick Berry. He had an old military pass from Ship Street that he was able to flash and say, oh, we're okay, he's with me, it's fine. So they let them through. But the first, their next stop was a little off-license that was just nearby, and they had two shots of brandy to calm their nerves. And they headed as far away from Croke Park as they possibly could. Uh, John, do you want to come in on the call? No, I, just only that um, he seems to have been, there's testimony that he was really upset about the deaths of Dick McKee and, and um, uh, Potter Clancy. And so he went, I think he went in uniform to the to the to their funerals, that sound right? Well, he certainly went... Uh, or he was wearing well, maybe a volunteer tunic underneath his jacket? You, well, I mean, one of the strange things, again, you have to remember, Dublin was a weird place that maybe it was because there were so many British troops um, escorting the, yeah. the dead officers to the destroyer, I think it was the Wolf, the Wolf was the name of it. And they, were, they were throwing, the they were, anyone well, who didn't take their hats off. Yes, I mean, the auxiliaries were going along the crowd. Anyone who hadn't removed their hat had it thrown in the Liffey. Mm-hmm. So you had this flotilla of hats floating down the Liffey. Uh, but at the same time, it, up in, uh, I think it was in F- Fibsburg, yeah. um, there was this huge funeral for McKee and Clancy, yeah. uh, and hundreds of members of the volunteers turned out, and they were marching quite unimpeded uh, up to Glasnevin. So you had this weird situation. Whether the British decided to allow that to happen, or they were just too busy uh, doing their own thing, we, we don't know. Yeah. But Dublin, strange things did happen in the city uh, at the time. And so it was a um, just a question in relation to the aftermath again, Michael. Just for the local people in Ballybock, Clonliffe area, um, a lot of them helped, including my own family, helped Joe Trainer. And there seemed to be a disproportionate amount of people from that area subsequently interred in, say, Bally Kindler. They seemed to pick on people who helped. And I just wonder, could you maybe expand on that or, or your thoughts on it, please? Well- I think there's, there could possibly be a connection. It was interesting as well. An awful lot of the families who took the injured in when uh, ambulances were notified to come to the house or whatever, they, the families would take the body or, or the wounded person and take them somewhere else. So they might take them to the end of the street or they might sit them on a windowsill just a few doors down or whatever so their house couldn't be connected with the... Uh, with the ambulance arriving to their front door sort of thing. So I think there may be something in what you say. Um, the, scene, the scene in your own family's house that particular evening sounds very, very sad. Like they carried, they carried Joe Trainer. It was the Rings, the Ring family uh, took Joe in and uh, they put him up on a table and they, they did what they could for him, but he, 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 he died that evening. But um, yeah, I think, I think there's... There's possibly something. I mean, I don't know whether there's any evidence to connect it to now. But well, well, the, I think the, the very simple reason, I think, if you look at the internees, both in the War of Independence and the Civil War, there was a disproportionate number of people in Dublin lifted. It was partly to do with the fact that Dublin was very active. But I think it was also to do with convenience. Uh, if you have military, military curfews, uh, anyone out on the street is liable to be stopped uh, once it goes about 8, eight o'clock in the evening and... Um, so uh, uh, 20% of all the internees in the War of Independence came from Dublin because they were there and they were easy to lift. And um, also yeah. North Dublin's also kind of a, a hotbed, Republican hotbed, and the Republican movement generally, the, the, the backbone were uh, kind of respectable, respectable working people, artisans, kind of skilled laborers. And so those are the kind of neighborhoods that would have been heavily uh, mobilized for the Republicans. So that also kind of explains part of it, too. I think we probably another five minutes. Uh, two que- two, time for two questions. Uh, okay. Thank right. you very much. But I was, just wanted to ask you, you described very well how they came in from jo- Russell Street and Jones's Road. Uh, 
Now, did they come in from any other side of the park? No. No. The, there, was, there was this thing, and it sort of got solidified even in the Michael Collins film, mm. the Neil Jordan film, where this kind of armoured car comes in, and if anyone, anyone who doesn't remember the scene... Basically, the armoured car comes in, parks in the middle of the field, a Tipperary fella kicks the ball over the armoured car and the crowd cheer, and the next thing, a machine gun starts. Um, there was one machine gun. There was an armoured car with a machine gun, but it was up at the kind of corner of the hill and the queues extend up on St. James's Avenue. But he only fired into the air, and the reason he fired into the air was to push the crowd back in as they were trying to get out. So, no, I mean, short answer is they came in over, they came in over sort of the, the canal end sort mm. of top of the Cove and stand there there was, a, there was a bunch of little turnstiles there so they just came in over there see it's sort of hard to picture what Croke Park was like then yeah. like I'm from Croke Park I was born five doors from yeah. the Joseph's Avenue entrance I wasn't there for that I didn't come along to the decade later <laughs> but um, the, the myth when I was growing up was that they came down St. Joseph's Avenue right Right. That they came in through. There may not have been a St. Joseph's Avenue entrance even then. No. Because I think the new, what we used to call the new Cusick Sand was only built, I think, in 1935 or six. That's right, yeah. yeah. They, had, they had a big entrance at St. James, at the St. James's Avenue yeah. corner there. And then mo- there was one down at the canal by the bridge. And then there was a, another entrance at the top end, we'll say, where the Hogan and the Hill on, on the Jones Road side, do you know? Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, so I mean, that, that, that would have been it. The, the geography of it's hard, it is hard, like it's so different now. Like, I mean, where the Cusack stand is now, you had a bank, and at the top of that, you had a wall that had a 20 foot drop down the other side, and that was the old Belvedere sports grounds, which of course are all, all gone now. Um, and then you had, we'll say you had two sort of, where the Hogan stand is now, you had a kind of a, a long stand and another bit of a thing, and then you had a, uh, the, the secretary or the director. Sorry, the secretary's house, and then you had the the few turnstiles, and the back of the canal goal was just a low, was just a low wall and a bit of a bank. So it was very, very different. All right. Yeah, different. Thank you. Thank you. And the last question over this side, um, whoever has the mic. Yes, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask about the funerals of the victims of Bloody Sunday in Crow Park. Was there any attempt to politicise them? Were they well attended, or were they just normal private family burials? The, um, the funerals, an order went out actually banning any sort of political or militaristic sort of aspects to the funerals. Um, so the vast majority were just five private family funerals. And it was one of the things that sort of, I suppose, when you're kind of researching a thing, a thing like Crow Park and Bloody Sunday and you're looking into the, the victims and that, it struck me and it still strikes me every time I even talk about it, I can feel myself getting a little choked up. Like as some of the... Some of the victims, they don't have a gravestone now. They've just fallen down or they were just left to go to rack and ruin or whatever. That uh, a story that sort of, whether it's the morning aspect or whether it's the Crow Park aspect, has been used in so many ways politically to explain different things off that 14, you know, innocent people who died uh, were... were Do do, do we know, Michael, if if some of the people... Um, actually were buried in their own plots because you had to buy a plot, or were they buried in common graves? Um, one was buried in a common grave. Was that the soldier? Uh, Michael Fury was buried yeah. in a common grave. I think the last, when I checked, and I have to go back yeah. and double-check this stuff, mm-hmm. but I think he's buried with about 20-odd people. Um, uh, you had, a couple of them had family plots, all right, um, but a lot of them, like, you know, we say Michael Hogan's funeral, 
below and Tipperary obviously was a, a pretty significant event. They brought him in the train down to Clanmel and he was walked from Clanmel to Grange Mokler, which is no easy, no easy walk. Uh, he was buried in a coffin with a glass lid and they borrowed the kit of a player called Jack Kickham and they put Jack's, they dressed him in Jack's gear and they buried him in Grange Mokler. There's, there's a very substantial uh, gravestone and so on and so forth. Um, he, he would have been the real significant one, obviously. You know, at, at this stage, too, the, the, the British administration was repressing kind of these spectacle, these propaganda funerals. So you have uh, orders going out that may be limiting the, uh, the procession to 100 members, and you'd have armored cars following along, and they would announce that they would shoot on people who were, who were walking, processing, if they exceeded that number. So there was a, a deliberate attempt to control uh, funerals because they'd been very good, effective uh, Republican um, uh, propaganda. Platforms. But an interesting point, just when I think of it there, about the Hogan funeral, they, they walked through Clanmel, past the army barracks, and some of the army men who were out stood to attention mm-hmm. as the Hogan cortege mm-hmm. went past. So there was a strange sort of um, etiquette also mm-hmm. observed in these things as well between both sides. Yeah. But look, I'd like to, to thank John and Michael for coming, and maybe, uh, maybe uh, Private Ferry is a man who maybe we, we should be honouring in some form if he is in a, a common grave uh, and marking uh, one of the forgotten uh, civilians who died on Bloody Sunday. So again, I thank you all for coming and uh, sharing us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.